I had basically gotten all the way through the interview and they said, you know what, can you do, they handed me a list of like, can you do any of these things? And I looked down the list, I was like, well, I'm really, I'm a really fast learner. And they were, and they were like, come back when you actually can do any of the things on this list. Creative bon vivant Gabe Schlumberger, Dartmouth 96, had a life in animated feature films and digital development at two of the most recognizable names in entertainment. So how did he find himself helping launch and run a retail eyewear startup? Find out how looking at things through the right lens often leads you to your own perfect fit on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. I'm here with my friend Gabe Schlumberger, Dartmouth class of 1996, and we're going to talk about the road taken from Dartmouth to now Southern California, but lots of um, twists to get there and really an interesting path. So welcome, Gabe. Thank you. So I always start with the same question of my guests, which is when you were in college, who were you? And when you were leaving, who did you think you were going to be? That's a really good and very difficult question. Um, I, I think in college, I was a little bit arrogant really curious, um, fascinated by a lot of different things. I think I, at one point, had officially declared six different majors, indecisive, and and it really only, I realized my senior fall when I was looking through the ORC that there were probably about 60 classes that I would have liked to have taken, and I really had a, a very limited uh, time left at Dartmouth. And honestly, I also spent most of senior year wondering what I was going to do with my life. Um, and realizing that none of the things, the options that were really in front of me were all that terribly appealing, but still figuring that there was probably something out there that was interesting that I could do. What was your outlook kind of right in that in that springtime? I did corporate recruiting for a hot minute um, and then was sort of casually entertaining the notion of working in finance or working in politics um, or possibly even film, but really had no great prospects. Had been scrambling and sending out a bunch of resumes, but didn't really sort of have a clear path forward either. I did know that I wanted to ride my motorcycle cross country, um, which I figured would probably take me from about June to August. And beyond that, I didn't have as many concrete plans as one would have and really should have had at that point. My outlook, uh, as my outlook went. Okay, so tell me about the motorcycle ride. It was kind of amazing. So uh, I'm not sure if I convinced them or uh, if we sort of had this collective delusion, but several of my friends, uh, including Brian Snyder and Zandi Hillel, yeah, we left from Hanover on our motorcycles uh, towards the end of June and uh, were woefully underprepared. And this was an era before cell phones or the internet. As a parent now, I'm sort of baffled and amazed that my parents did not totally freak out at the notion that I was going to be riding, you know, somewhere across North America for three months. But they probably did. They were just really quiet about it to you. They were surprisingly <laughs> supportive of it. Yeah. And then we actually ended up meeting up with a bunch of other uh, 96s, Ben Brainerd and, and Andrew Kingsdale and Jeff Jeffers and Reed Vito. And we sort of traveled north from uh, Colorado up through Banff and Jasper. Uh, Jeff and Reed ended up continuing on to Alaska. We came down the West Coast and everyone sort of ended up in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area most of them on my mom's couch. We were a motley caravan, a motley <laughs> convoy that was, uh, you know, looked askance by every municipal police department. As and, it should have been. Yeah, yes. and wisely so. 
All right. So you ended up where did you end up? In the Bay Area, which in 90, the latter 90s in the Bay Area were a very interesting time, as you well know, pre.com boom. And a few years later, almost everybody I knew ended up moving out there. People, you know, abandoned their finance or consulting jobs and everyone was moving to the Bay Area by 90, 97, 98. Um, by that point, I was actually a I was an animator um, or an aspiring animator at the time. And while everyone else was working for, you know, whatever .com and had their, you know, the pre-IPO launch party, I was toiling away until the wee small hours uh, doing the minutia of animation. I was at San Francisco Opera making nothing. So we and I were in good company. We should have, well, I would say we, we should have hung out, but neither of us could have paid for a dinner. So anyway. Okay. So that's the story, right? Pixar, who cares about the bust or the boom and bust you were at pixar tell yeah tell tell me about that i had secretly aspired to work at pixar for some time i actually wrote a paper about pixar before pixar was really pixar i ended up writing a paper about um some pixar's early shorts that at the time pixar wasn't even really an animation company it was a hardware company and they were using the shorts as sort of demos for look how powerful our computer uh, or or it was actually just a board, um, was, um, I had applied for an internship. I took, I think the one animation class at, uh, I think that's um, the one class you and I had together. Oh, you're right. No, yeah. you're right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Dartmouth punches wildly above its weight in animation. Weirdly enough, the animation class, you know, has, has produced some wildly successful animators and, and directors, but you know, it sort of piqued in my interest and I had actually applied for an internship at Pixar and, you know, thought that I was a contender. And this was in 93 or 94. And, uh, you know, had basically gotten all the way through the interview and they said, you know what, we just don't have time for interns who don't, who need to learn something because we just got greenlit for this movie that we're going to be doing. And can you do, they handed me a list of like, can you do any of these things? And I looked down the list. I was like, well, I'm really, I'm a really fast learner. And they were, and they were like, come back when you actually can do any of the things on this list. So it was like render wrangling or um, lighting or writing render man shaders or debugging uh, code. And seven years later, I think I eventually, you know, after applying to Pixar, I think seven times in total, I eventually got a job um, and I got to work on some amazing movies with some amazing people. And how many of those things on that punch list did you know by then? By the time I actually got the job, quite a few, actually, surprisingly. Um, after getting my first rejection from Pixar, I kept applying every uh, every sort of nine to 12 months on the, uh, as they kept expanding. And I got pretty close uh, at several points um, and ended up actually meeting and, and having and taking classes from several of the folks who were already working at Pixar, which was really incredibly, incredibly valuable. Yeah. Um, I also learned my sort of first post-Dartmouth important lesson, which is that Dartmouth doesn't necessarily equip you to do any jobs right away, um, but it equips you with the ability to learn how to do a job really quickly. And so you can catch up pretty quickly, but you're starting from a few yards back uh, from the starting lines compared to somebody who studied animation for four years at CalArts. Right, um, right. Yeah. Uh, but it took me, you know, from the time I graduated and there was a small foray down to uh, South America, but from the time I actually decided that I really wanted to work in animation, it took me basically three and a half years to get a job at, uh, at Pixar. And it was a, it, it was a phenomenal time to be there and a phenomenal time and a and truly incredibly, uh, incredibly great experience. And how long were you there? I was there for just over five years. So my first, I came in right after the end of Toy Story 2. Um, and I worked on Monsters, Inc., 
Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, Cars, and a whole bunch of shorts, um, including my favorite project that I ever worked on, which was Bounden. Love it. So how does one ever leave, like, one's childhood dream, everyone's childhood dream, (laughs) right? To work at these, this amazing creative place. It's interesting. And especially, you know, now, uh, God, 15 years hence, um, I have, I've been gone from Pixar three times as long as I was actually there, which is sort of baffling to me. I had been working, um, uh, you know, a variety of jobs related to animation or visual effects while I was going to the Academy of Art. And I really you know, my notion was that once I got to Pixar, I was going to be there for life and I was just going to get better at making movies and eventually I would direct. And I think I was around, you know, the 200th or so employee. Um, and I figured that I was like 175 people away from being a director. Um, and then five years later, when I left, I think I was like 173 people away from being a director. <laughs> and and I realized that, um, and actually I, I had gotten some, I was sort of moved by Steve Jobs' graduation speech at Stanford And he really said, you know, find something you love to do and do it. And if you feel like you're not learning, you know, as much every day, then really maybe you should move on. And that ultimately, like, death is the great change agent. Um, And so you really need to not squander any of the time you had. And I felt like at Pixar, I had really learned, I'd learned how to tell a story. I'd learned how to work in an environment of like-minded people towards a greater purpose, you know, being a little tiny cog, one three hundredth of a movie is an amazing experience, especially when you're sitting in a theater for the first time, the lights go dark and the logo comes on screen and, you know, all of the rest of the audience members gasp and, and are so excited. And it really, you know, working at Pixar during the sort of golden age of, or the first of many golden ages of Pixar was just such an incredible experience. But I also realized that if I didn't leave then, I was never going to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and that while I, I was learning to do one thing really, really well, there were so many other things sort of in the same way that I had trouble deciding on my, on my major. Um, there were so many other things that I wanted to pursue. It was becoming way too comfortable. And if I didn't leave then I would never be able to. So I, I quit my dream job. Yeah. That's so hard. And I've done it once and there's a lot of identity wrapped up into work and a lot of, um, you know, second guessing when you leave that. I, 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 ex- I experienced that. I don't know if you felt that. Tremendously so. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, yeah, and, and, and was haunted by it for years as a result. And, you know, you're always wondering, like, did I make a mistake? Like, who am I, you know, if I'm not, you know, the guy who works at Pixar? Um, yeah. And especially, you know, we're not working in technology or the dot-com space in San Francisco, as you well know, um, during the 2000s, you felt sort of countercultural, and, you know, almost more so you, you it became a, a crucible of your identity. Um, and so, I mean, so much so that when I left Pixar, I figured I couldn't stick around the Bay Area. Um, I also uh-huh. grew up there and it was, and so I, I quit and up and moved to New York in a matter of weeks and went from there. Yeah, that probably helped. Yeah, I think it was a painful therapy, um, mm-hmm. having grown up in the Bay Area and then having uh, lived in Hanover and then moved back to San Francisco. It doesn't really prepare you for a big city experience, and especially if you're going through a uh, you know early 30s existential crisis. Um, throwing yourself into the flurry of New York can be a little bit daunting. So what kept you busy during the days? Um, so I actually I took a job at Blue Sky. Um, now it's part of Disney as well, but it, it was really a, you know, it was a one of the earlier animation studios, a lot scrappier. Um, they made this do with so much less. 
Um, I worked on Horton Years of Who, and uh, which was a fantastically fun experience. Honestly, I felt really alive and energized in New York. And for somebody who grew up in California, who had strong California roots and, you know, thought of themselves as more of a sort of outdoorsy person, I was surprised at just how much I really took to New York City. However, I know that you don't end up there, um, at least I, not right now. So tell me how the path meandered back west. Well, I mean, I fully committed to New York. I married a New Yorker. I had New Yorker kids. Um, she didn't, it helps that she was in 94. And so it, it did ease the transition, but she had grown up uh, in New York City and I had fully committed to the to a New York lifestyle. After working in animated film for about a decade, um, which you know is sort of absurd when I think about it, because really I worked on five projects in that time. Mm. Um, you know, it takes an eternity to make a, yeah. an animated film, uh, so you don't end up working on all that many. But when I went, first went into animation, my goal was like I'm going to direct my own film, and then uh, you know after I'd been in it for five eight years, I was like, huh. I love the storytelling aspects. I love working on projects that are collaboratively creative. And I love working on things that sort of change people's lives or, you know, have a have a place in their lives um, that, you know, are sort of near and dear. And I worked, you know, briefly in, I left Blue Sky, worked briefly on experimental film that was, you know, greatly admired by the dozens of people who saw it. And, and then the iPhone came out. And it was sort of this, it was a slightly transformative event. And I realized that you have this thing in your pocket, which is sort of a window to not just your soul, but the world around you. This was even before apps. And I started, you know, messing around and, and coding uh, some little stuff on the side, uh, originally some web pages. There was rumors afoot that there was going to be this thing, you know, a bigger iPhone, a bigger screen iPhone. And I thought, wow. Like, this is probably the closest analog to what I loved so much about animation storytelling, which was like, you're innovating both in the medium of telling a story as well as telling the story at the same time. And so when apps came out, I was like, I am hooked. I jumped in and decided I want to do apps. So you're an app developer. I was an app developer. Well, I was, uh, most people who have ever seen my spaghetti code will tell you that I'm the world's worst engineer um, and I shouldn't be allowed near GitHub. But I went to work for a startup, Callaway Digital Arts, which had been a children's book publisher and then was transitioning. They were burning the boats and transitioning to digital uh, apps. And I got to work on some of the earliest iPad apps. And it was terrific. It was really, you know, sort of inventing the medium before it had really been established at the time. So uh, I did uh, Martha Stewart Makes Cookies and The Monster at the End of This Book, um, starring Grover. Yeah, I Grover, I'm very tall. <laughs> and a bunch of other stuff. And I really loved it. Um, and eventually found my way to Disney, which was sort of having worked at Pixar when it was definitely not part of Disney. Mm. Um, and then having taken a job at Disney, it was sort of like going from being a pirate to being part of the Navy. Um, <laughs> but uh, Disney Publishing was just starting up a digital apps group. And I came on as the uh, director of creative. It was great because I got to take a lot of the properties that I had been that I had gotten the privilege of working on at Pixar and bringing them to a new medium. So it was it was a really fun and fascinating time. Wow. And that was still in New York. That was still in New York. Yeah, I was in White Plains. And then about I always thought that if I took a job at Disney and if I really wanted to make a career of it, I would eventually have to consider going back to the mothership. And lo and behold, less than six months after I took the job, uh, they moved the entire division to LA and they said, you know, we'd love for you to follow your jobs. And so we decided to move to LA for 18 months, eight years ago. <laughs> right. Funny how that happens. Yeah. Wow. But the we is big by then. 
Who was big by then? It was uh, myself, my wife, uh, the uh, <laughs> Sam, Sam aforementioned '94, Sam Schweitzer, and uh, our two kids. Who I think were were game. You know, uh, Samantha had never lived in a single family uh, residence when we moved to LA. Um, her first question was, "Who's the super?" Um, and uh, um, <laughs> I, like I explained it was me, um, and then she got really, really nervous. And there's a certain magic in working for Disney in LA. You can go to the parks anytime. You could, uh, our group rolled up into consumer products and very quickly we were, um, I think that, and it actually speaks sort of to the cross-disciplinary nature of my Dartmouth experience. I got sort of spread across all of consumer products and interactive doing a bunch of different projects. So I wasn't just doing apps, but I was also doing digitally enabled toys and a transmedia learning brand. And it was really, it was an amazing time to be able to do such a multivariate, multivariate things and really trying to invent new media. It was really cool. Okay. So once you left a storytelling movie company. And now you're going to tell me that you left Disney. Yeah. What kind of like fun loving (laughs) creative are you? I, it's, I, I, maybe it is, you know, I think perhaps having spent winters in Hanover, New Hampshire, I I was on every single winter in my Dartmouth experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, you know, perhaps I'm just a glutton for punishment. I ended up being, my job at Disney was really, I was the embedded startup guy. So I was going from sort of one embedded startup to the next. And I had always had a sort of, you know, call it an entrepreneurial bent and entrepreneurial spirit. But I think that, you know, it can be, especially as you get uh, a little bit older, you know, it's very hard to, to leave a big company in the comfort of identity. Um, you know, working at Disney, you know, does inflect your entire life. And I sort of called my own bluff and said, uh, you know, if I'm going to go do startups, I better damn well go do startups. Um, and so I had been helping with the Disney accelerator a little bit, but I decided to go for it. And, uh, I left Disney and kicked around a few ideas of my own and then, um, decided to hone my craft, uh, working for a startup, working, uh, briefly for Violet Gray, a luxury beauty company. Honestly, mostly because I was really fascinated by e-commerce. Um, I hadn't had much exposure to it. All this while, you know, most of my jobs had sort of tracked to either my sort of curiosities and, and interests um, or the experiences that I was going through. When I was creating apps, um, I was doing it for, you know, around the same time that my kids were using the app. So I had a built-in beta testers at home. Um, and my son, Lucas, wears glasses. And getting him glasses was really a terrible experience. Um, it's broken in so many different ways. Um, and not having grown up wearing glasses myself, I thought that we were just doing it wrong as parents. And I turned to one of the other moms in Lucas's class and she was like, no, actually, it's a broken experience overall. But conveniently enough, I'm starting, I, I've decided to start a company to fix this. So I uh, originally was starting out giving them some advice and then uh, it became abundantly clear that this was, uh, this was the company that I was going to dedicate my, my life in the last two years to. Wow. That's great. I figure there's a beautiful picture of your family actually in a Dartmouth magazine and your son is wearing glasses. And I thought that might be the connection. So that would be the connection. So tell me about Fitz Frames. What what's the mission and how do you fit in and how does all your past like fit into that? So it's honestly, I mean, you sort of can't write these um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up a little bit with an, an animation metaphor. So there's really two ways to do animation. There's keyframe animation, or there is straight ahead animation. So straight ahead animation, you draw incremental pictures 
one after the other and you know you sort of see where it goes or a claymation is straight ahead animation because you're moving things incrementally down a sort of uh, an intentioned path keyframe animation you draw the sort of key beats or the key moments um, and then then you draw the in-betweens the moments in between i think that you know sort of retrospectively everything looks like straight ahead animation um, or for people who know from birth exactly what they want to do it becomes a very straight linear path but in retrospect it makes a lot of sense that i started a kid's glasses company i couldn't have prophesied that so it was a terrible experience getting glasses for lucas and we really figured that there must be a better way and after our founder heidi you know she'd looked for five years and tried a variety of different ways we really were like hey there's you know, there's actually, we, I think we can sit down and actually build this. Um, so we're a 3D printed custom eyeglasses company, ostensibly for kids, although about secretly about 50% of our orders are coming from adults at this point. So we build an app that scans your face, you do a virtual try-on, and then we 3D print custom glasses made to your measurements in our factory in Youngstown, Ohio. And then we ship them directly to your door. Between Lucas kept losing, breaking, or growing out of his glasses. Um, and, uh, you know, we actually, I think we built a better mousetrap. Okay, so there's app development, there's marketing and storytelling, there's all kinds of things. Like, is your, fo- is your fingerprint all over this? Or do you have a, a particular piece that is kind of your, your part? I think that all of the people who work for the company would tell you that I'm the point of failure in every single aspect of the company. (laughs) I doubt they'd say that. It is really a very multivariate experience. And so it did take, it's got uh, elements of technology. It's got elements of design. It's got elements of storytelling and and really e-commerce and marketing. But ultimately, sort of in the same way that with, like with a good Pixar movie, the technology falls away, and what you and what you really are moved by is the story and characters. Yeah. You know, all of the technology and the underpinnings behind what we do, hopefully, just create a simpler, easier process of getting and keeping glasses under kids. Yeah, I mean, and I will say, everybody should go look at the website and check it out because the storytelling on it is so great. You know, it's personal, and and that's kind of where the best products are going now, right? It grew, really grew out of personal, perfectly personal experience. Yeah, um, and I think that you know, everybody who goes through that experience thinks that they're the only ones out there, but it's sort of universal. So here you are, kind of running this bespoke eyewear, three D printed glass company. And that's the perfect fit. My, you know, the pun. It's sort of in retrospect. Yeah. I mean, it really does combine so many of the different things that we actually use animation software in our manufacturing process. Sitting around in June of 1996, I could not have in my wildest dreams tracked a course that would have gotten me through animation all the way to running a glasses company. But um, in retrospect, it sort of all makes sense. Yeah. And it's probably better that he didn't know because, you know, he might not have taken all of that the paths, including the motorcycle um, trip. But are there words of wisdom you would give him if you were able to go back? It can be very easy to make the obvious choice. Um, I don't know how many people who decide to go to school in Hanover, New Hampshire, are making the obvious choice. Um, unless you, unless you, uh, unless you grew up in Hanover, went to Hanover High. Um, but I think that <laughs> it takes a degree of unconventionalness to have chosen Dartmouth in the first place, and that instinct will usually bear you in good stead. Be confident in your ability to acquire knowledge, 
Um, you probably know less than you need to be able to compete successfully in the job market right out of the gate. But I think that you can learn faster than almost anybody else. And if you sort of go after the things that really intrigue you and you're curious about, you'll be okay. Um, you don't need to necessarily take the conventional route. I love that. I, I think that is such good advice for all of us at any age. And I think being willing, as you've done a couple of times, to say, am I growing here? Am I learning here? And if the answer is no, to find the the next thing that will help you do that. Um, so maybe eyeglasses isn't going to be your last pivot. Um, likely not, knowing you. Um, but at least it's a good one for now. And I think it's probably serving your family well. It's been an incredible experience. And honestly, the, the other thing that uh, I forget sometimes, how many allies I have. Um, and how many people are willing to help. I try to pay it back a little bit. I got some great advice and great help from a bunch of alums early on who you know, sort of took me under their wing and, and helped me. And frankly, people who had absolutely no vested interest in my success whatsoever. For the most part, I think that people are really willing to help, especially if you're curious and, and frankly follow up because they're usually pretty busy. Yeah, great advice too. All right, well... Gabe, I'm so glad that we were able to reconnect this way, and I can't wait to hear what the next twists and turns are going to lead for you. But I just I hope this chapter is very successful and leads you to all happy things um, for you and yours. Thank you. It's been a great experience. That was Gabe Schlumberger, CEO of Fitzframes, a 3D printed eyewear company. Find their full line of prescription blue light filtering and sunglasses at Fitzframes. FITZframes.com and find me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, with another friend on the next episode of Roads Taken.